I recently saw a tweet that said there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who saved room for dessert, and then there are monsters. I don't know about you, maybe you would separate this world into other different categories. Uh, um, I'm definitely the kind of person who's like, I'll save room for dessert, for seconds, for thirds, for fourths, you know, whatever it is. There's always room. Uh, I will make room. We used to have this phrase as a Growing up as kids, we're like, the meal isn't over when you're done. The meal is over when you hate yourself, right? Um, but basically, there's two kinds of people in this world. And, and maybe for you, you would, you would use different categories. Maybe for you, you would use the category of like how you eat a chocolate bar. There's two kinds of people in this world, right? There's the people who break off one piece at a time, and then there's monsters. I mean, uh, people who dive right into the corner and just eat right away. Um, Maybe for you, you divide it into how you eat a sandwich or how you slice a sandwich, right? Uh, my brother used to always say growing up, you get so much more flavor in your mouth if you diagonally cut it. How many diagonal people are, okay, right? You can fit more in your mouth, I'm just saying. Uh, just try it. If, you, if you've never cut your sandwiches diagonally, you have now seen the light. Um, maybe for you, you're like super disciplined because you only need to set one alarm in the morning. Is there anybody with the yellow phone here? Like anybody who's a one alarm person? All right, we want to be like you. Um, you are amazing. We look up to you. We aspire to be that. Uh, maybe about how you arrange books on a bookshelf. There's two kinds of people in this world, right? It's like, whoop, everything just makes sense. You look at it, it makes you feel good, right? And then there's other people, they're like, no, no, no. It's based on the genre. It's based on the content. And you're like, I don't care. It doesn't look good. Maybe for you, it's how you complete puzzles. Who just looks at a Sudoku puzzle and knows? Like, how do you do that? Wow, I want to be like you, Ron, when I grow up. <laughs> For you, maybe it's whether you use an analog or a digital watch. Now, I'm a little bit of a hybrid. I've got this uh, old Apple Watch that's I'm using an analog interface. So I'm like, I still want to see the circles. But uh, uh, maybe for you, it's how, how many uh, app notifications you can tolerate. Okay, uh, this is just, um, I got to throw this out there. I have a hard time, like, relating to people who have more than 100 notifications on their emails. I'm just like, I get it, it everyone is different, but, like, I'm just like, it gives me anxiety just looking at oh, uh, triple digits of notifications or quadruple or pent... I don't even know how far you can go with that. But um, uh, maybe for you, it's earbuds or earphones. You're like, there's two kinds of people in this world, and this totally matters. Like, I need complete surround sound or I need mobility. Uh, maybe for you... Uh, it's bookmarks or folded pages. I don't know why, but somehow I always see people who use bookmarks as like another socioeconomic status. I'm like, oh my word. That is a level to get to, like to feel so confident about, yeah, exactly. Oh, if you have your Bible, yeah, he's showing me his Bible. He's like, it's got a bookmark in it. Now, okay, that's a different story. I've got one too. Um, just a few more. Maybe for you, you uh, use a phone case, and maybe for some other people, you don't. You just have the financial courage. I don't need a phone case. I'm good. <laughs> this phone, either I can afford a new one, or I'm confident I will never break it. Um, maybe uh, whether you organize apps or not. How many guys are like, you totally use folders for your apps? Any people like that? Awesome. Me too. I get that, right? I have apps, uh, and if I could... This is just me. If I could, I would have folders inside of my folders inside of my folders to organize. My, and it would just be all one folder on one screen. You know what I mean? That's just, that's how I roll. Um, 
But uh, the final one, maybe, uh, how many of you guys are like this? You, you would prefer chopsticks when you're eating Asian cuisine. Anybody? Chopsticks people? Okay. My, my brother and I used to have a contest when we were younger to see who could last the longest with chopsticks before we caved in and had a fork. Um, and so there's two types of people in this world, but really you could separate it into a lot of different categories. There's actually an, an, almost an innumerable amount of ways that you can divide this world into two different categories. Um, Jesus, Jesus actually divides this world into two different categories as well. Jesus goes ahead and he divides the world into two different categories. Those who, will enter the, or who, who do enter the kingdom of God and those who do not. That, that's, that's the way that Jesus sees the world. That's the two categories that Jesus sees. And I need to say this before we jump in too deep. Today's message is going to involve a, a much more uh, heavy, serious distinction as we talk about the way that Jesus sees the two categories in this world. This morning we're going to talk about two different very two diff- uh, ways to, to view this life. In fact, two different ways to follow Jesus and be part of his kingdom. And I just want to prepare you that this conversation is probably not as easy as the best ways to eat Asian food. I'm not, it's, it's going to be a little bit more heavy than that. So I just I want to preface this in advance because... When we talk about this, this has eternal ramifications, right? Um, but this is a very necessary discussion because I really believe that God has something very specific he wants to say to each and every person here this morning. I do believe that this message is not necessarily for the person next to you, but it's for you. Um, so Jesus, he actually is telling these kingdom stories. These are, the, these are parables meant to rearrange our thoughts in our mind about what we think about God and what we think about everybody else. That's what parables are all about. And that's why we're calling this kingdom stories. Because Jesus is, is rearranging these thoughts in our mind to, to help us understand this. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to go ahead and stand on up. Um, if, you're not, if you don't have a Bible, you can still stand up as well if you're able. We're going to read the text of Scripture this morning together. And Dan, we're just going to go 24 to 30. Verses 24 to 30 here as we read this morning. It goes like this. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Good job. You can sit down. Uh, And actually what I want to do is later on, a few verses later, Jesus goes ahead and explains this parable. Verse 36. So you can just join me right there. Uh, Then he left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him. Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds stand for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin in all who do evil. Notice who does that. That's the angels. Okay, that's, that's their job. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus tells the story to illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he opens by using this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, which I mentioned a few sermons ago, the kingdom of heaven is the phrase, hey, basileia ton uranon, which is, which is Greek. Uh, and it describes not just the place that you're going to go someday because you believed certain facts about Jesus. It's not talking about heaven someday when I get there. He's talking about the current lived experience of those who, who call themselves followers of Jesus, who, who have submitted to the reign of him as their king. And, and this is, um, this is the, uh, those who've been redeemed and renewed by God as they submit to him and as they partner with him to spread his glory and his kingdom in this world. It describes God's rule over creation and the participation of his people as they advance his kingdom forward. This is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it starts now, the moment that you enter the kingdom of heaven, and it goes on forever. So those who have currently submitted to Jesus, who are following Jesus, this is describing what life is like in the kingdom. So he says... Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed the heads, the weeds also appeared. And I love this about the way that Jesus describes the kingdom. He acknowledges that the weeds are real. He acknowledges that there is actual, like, sin. There is actual uh, evil that happens among, intertwined with, the, the, the good seeds that the king is planting in this world, which is the field that he's describing. He, he doesn't pretend that they don't exist. Jesus is not preaching the kingdom of heaven just to dull your mind, to give you this sort of like euphoric coping mechanism for how to deal with the problems and, and the, the evil realities that exist on this planet. No, no, no. Jesus is saying this is, a, this is an invitation into this lived experience, this lived reality, this kingdom that starts now and lasts forever. This is an invitation into the kingdom as a way to completely heal and redeem all that is going wrong in this world. I'm not pretending it doesn't exist. I'm saying, no, no, no. When you're part of this kingdom, there are weeds and, there are, and there's good seed. And this kingdom is part of what was going to be, uh, in the end, what redeems and, and renews everything that has gone wrong in this world. So, so he's saying this is this grand story into which you and I are, are being invited to be participants in the kingdom. And so in this parable, Jesus is describing the world, the, your, your reality as a field where the king sowed good seeds that were designed to sprout up into wheat. Um, and then he also says, an enemy comes, and while the king sowed good seed, the enemy comes while he's sleeping and sows bad seed. And what winds up happening is out of the ground springs two crops that look almost identical. Because he, he uses the word, when he's describing the word weeds, or you might have it in your Bible as the word tares, it comes from the Greek word zizania, which is just generally describing a whole genus of, of wild grains. Okay, so zizania, there's a lot of 
specific types of uh, species of grains within that genus. But um, it's, it's basically a wild grain. And the crazy thing is it looks a lot like wheat. Or like wheat. Check this out. There's a picture I want to show you here. Um, I want you to try to guess which one is the weeds, or the wheat, I'm sorry, which one is the wheat and which one is the wild grain? They look crazy similar, okay? This one column is one of them, and this other column is the other, and uh, they, they look almost identical. You can go ahead and show the next slide, because um, here's the wheat over here, which the word, the Greek word cetos is what describes the wheat, and the word, Greek word zizanion is what describes the weeds. They look almost identical, when they're growing up, especially right next to each other with their root systems inter intermingled, you can't really tell what the difference is. And so what winds up happening is the, the servants come to Jesus and they say, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where'd the weeds come from? Did you like maybe mix up the grain? Did you make a mistake here? He said, no, no, no. An enemy did this. So the servants were like, well, let's, let's pull out the weeds. Let's get, let's get rid of the, the things that look exactly alike so that way we're not confused. And here's the point that Jesus is making before I go on. Just as the wheat and the weeds are similar on an outer appearance, and especially like their, their root systems are intermingled. Now, obviously, this is not wheat, okay? This is just a plant, so if you type A people, chill. Um... The root systems, though, are intermingled, and, and, and as they look so similar to actually root out the weeds, the things that look like what's supposed to be there, what you wind up doing, sorry, Keith, you see what I mean? The more that I pull, and the more that I try to, like, I'm actually damaging the, the rest of the soil for the good seed that's supposed to be growing right now. It's not the time. To be pulling out the weeds. If I start doing this, right, and I start doing this, I start to threaten the very soil that is uh, nourishing the good seeds. Now, this is Jesus' point. God's enemies sometimes are hard to distinguish from his own people on the outside. They're, they're too interconnected in this lived reality, in this world, uh, for anyone to purify the world from evil without damaging those who are chosen by God without questioning the justice of God and without opposing the grace of God. This is what I mean. The servants of the king wanted to instantly employ their ideas and how to, how to fix what has gone wrong in the king's field. And we often do this, right? We see these problems that exist in our life. We see these problems that exist in our world. And we try to employ more of our mind and more of our persuasion and more of our talent and more of our control. And we, we try to like Fix everything that we see is going wrong. The sinful things, the evil patterns that exist in our life and in our world. And we just go like, let's get busy pulling out all the bad things. And so you start like weeding out. You try to like fix things in your marriage. You try to fix things in, in, your, um, in your relationships. And you don't have enough power sometimes to fix everything that has gone wrong. And, and you're like trying so hard. And, you're, and you see these things that are going on in, in uh, culture. And you're like, man, let me pick out all the bad things that are happening. And be the one to shut down the things or, or completely block off everything bad that's happening in our culture. And what's happening is you're getting exhausted. And, and actually, this is kind of what it sounds like in the church. 
right? When, when you don't seem to have the same kind of control or influence in this new culture that you used to have back when things were normal, it starts to sound a little bit like, how could you be a Christian if, and then you fill in the blank. Because what you're doing is you're saying, you're on that side, and I'm on this side, and God's on my side. Therefore, God's in a opposition to you. And we start to do this saying, I'm going to try to try to weed out all the bad things. How could you be a Christian if you, if, if you have tattoos? How could you be a Christian if you watch church online and never come back into church? How could you be a Christian if you voted for so-and-so? Guys, I have had face-to-face conversations with people who thought I voted for the opposing party um, from both sides of the spectrum, okay? Who both of them have said to me, how could you be a Christian if you voted for so-and-so? I think the kingdom's a little bigger than that. How could you be a Christian? Maybe this hits a little bit old, or old school. How could you be a Christian if you have a, a post-trib eschatology, right? If you know, you know. How could you be a Christian if you, if you don't boycott Netflix and don't boycott Target and don't boycott Starbucks and everybody else that seems to have a slightly different view of what I think should be happening in this world? How, how could you be a Christian if you're not busy pulling out all the weeds? Because you think you know so much better than God. When all else fails, God, I'm not going to fall away. I will be the one who stays strong even though no one else in my world will. You can count on me to be the voice of the Holy Spirit of conviction in everybody else's life the moment that they can stand to hear my voice. And you've actually forgotten to do the one thing that's actually necessary, which is to ask the king what his plan is. Because it's actually the worst possible idea to try to uproot all the weeds in the garden. Why? Because in so doing, you're threatening the very life and the growth of the good seeds that the king planted in the first place. I don't want you to miss this because I'm being too subtle. Here's the blunt translation. On your best day, On your best day, all your efforts to be the one who weeds out all the sin and cancels all the forms of evil in this world is actually threatening to the growth of God's kingdom. This is what the text is saying. Getting rid of everything that causes sin, verse 41, and all who do evil is not your job. attempt to do this and you just hope God plays along with your little religious crusade you're actually damaging the cause of the kingdom and I speak from sad and frequent conversations with and it makes me cry I speak from, speak from sad and frequent conversations with deconverted people or people who think they're headed that way how damaging your crusades and your boycotts and your canceling is to the faith of those who want God but no longer feel safe to come to the very pillar and foundation of God's truth, which is the church. I had a conversation like that this week. Yes, God uses godly people to push against the tide of oppression and slavery in this world. I agree with that. Yes, God, the Holy Spirit is present in the body of believers resisting evil in this world. I get that. But how many more self-inflicted black eyes does the church need to experience 
before we finally admit that the people who sin differently than us are not the enemy. And your petty crusade against the mere symptom of a deeper heart issue is not the solution. Your blogs and your protests and your posts against somebody else's specific kind of sin won't solve the big problems in this world, but they will push people away from the only one who can. Guys, there's another side of this that we don't really see in the church very often. How we're seen. The kingdom is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And there are people on the other end of this who want hope. They want peace. They want everything that Jesus offers, but they're scared of Jesus' people. Here's the interesting thing. So, when 9-11 happened, right, when the, the planes bombed in the Twin Towers, they were hijacked, and um, people obviously, in the middle of that, had a widespread hysteria about flying in airplanes. Fear of flying went up through the roof. And so people drove a whole lot more, even though it's just, flying is statistically the safest way to travel, like far safer than driving. In fact, they say if you uh, if you drive to the airport to get ready to board the plane, you've already completed the most dangerous part of your journey, right? Literally, the death toll in the United States went up right after 9-11 simply due to the fact that people were driving more and there was more traffic accidents. There was a lot of factors, but that was one significant one, right? They did something that felt better and seemed safer from a limited perspective, even though their fears were completely wrong. They thought they were avoiding a dangerous thing. They were actually doing something that was much more dangerous. And and we do this. We tell the king what he should be doing to take care of the problems that have happened in his world that that makes sense from our limited point of view. And usually we come up with a disastrous plan. But if we had just sought the king in the first place, we might not be in such a mess. Because here's what happens. What, What does the king say? Verse 29. No, no, no. He says, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you might root up the wheat with them. This is, this is the counterintuitive thing for the church, okay? Let both grow together until the harvest. The king says to wait. The king says to have patience, to let both live together. And when the harvest time comes, that's when he will come and make all things right. Because every time something goes wrong... Right? Every time terrible things do happen and people do get away with gross immorality and despicable oppression and deplorable genocide and political corruption do happen. Every time something wrong happens, we go, Lord Jesus, come quickly and fix this immediately. And I get it. I do. I get the desire to, to, be, to be released from the brokenness and the, and, and the, the, the overwhelming evil in this world. I, I get it. But do you know why God doesn't come and mend every broken thing right away? Do, do you know why God doesn't step in and intercede every time someone's about to do something wrong? God hasn't intervened yet. Because he's full of grace. Here's what's crazy. I'm actually really glad that God didn't come in 1936 to prevent Saddam Hussein from ever being born. 
and putting to death over 2 million people. I'm actually kind of glad God didn't come in 1924, the year before the evil Pol Pot was born. I'm so glad that God didn't come in 1888 to prevent Adolf Hitler or Heimlich Himmler from being born and exterminating over 6 million Jews. I, I hate that that happened, right? I'm so glad that God didn't come in 1877, which would have ensured Joseph Stalin never walked this earth, or 1430 to prevent Vlad Impaler from wreaking his weird brand of havoc on this world, or any other time in human history. Why? Because it means by the grace of God that every successive generation still has the opportunity to receive his salvation and enter into his kingdom. Are any of those things that I just mentioned worth defending in the slightest? Are, are any of those evils excusable at all? Not at all. No, they're deplorable on an eternal level. But are any of those even close in comparison to the weight of the glory of the goodness of God that you will be experiencing 479 billion years into eternity? Not even close. They don't even measure on the same scale. And so for God to delay one more day is eternally worth it if somebody enters the kingdom. This is why the plan of God is so much better than our little attempts to de defend the honor of our little brand of Christianity. It is. Because here's where it gets real. If you're alive and you're hearing these words today, an invitation into the kingdom of God, it's because God has given people more time to turn to him. There will be a day when that offer does not exist anymore. There will be a day when evil and sin and malicious intent will ultimately and finally and totally be dealt with in a completely just way. People are not getting away with things, I promise you. God has a bigger timeline. But God has prolonged his time to intervene because in his grace, he still desires to rescue and win more people. Like, yes, even the people who are currently committing evil. And every day the sun comes up, God graciously is extending the offer to mankind yet again to receive his grace. God's not letting evil happen because he's dumb or because he's distant. Because he can't quite comprehend how enormous your suffering is. He will ultimately and finally deal with evil once and for all. But God, is, God has delayed his time to intervene because he's ultimately good in giving people one more day. He knows better than any of us. And we, we try to see this from our limited perspective. We try to, we try to project onto God the, some sort of like negligence or evil because he's not stepping in and intervening right away. But God has such a bigger timeline. And so what we see here is the, the king's servants going, do you want us to go and pull them up? Do you want us to go and root out all the, the weeds, the bad things, the evil and the, the sin in, the, in our world, in this field? Do you want us to go root it all up right now and pick them and throw them away? Think about the self-righteousness it takes to say something like that to God. Or, or even to think like that, something like that on behalf of God. And this is, this is the position Jesus is saying. Because he's saying, it's essentially saying to the king and the creator of everything, let me be the one to deal with the problems that you have, God. Let me be your savior and your defender. And the king is saying, no, 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 no. 
that's not your job. I'm pretty good at that job, actually. That's not your job. That's not your timeline. This is, this is grace. This is undeserved favor that is, is continued to be extended until today. Here's the point. God doesn't have to give anybody one more day. He's got an infinitely huge list of reasons why nobody here today deserves another breath. But in his grace, he's given everybody, he's given everybody another day to experience this open invitation into his kingdom. He's not overlooking evil. He's not saying the weeds are okay. But he is saying, now is the time for grace. He says, let both grow together. And then, at that time, which he describes later as the end of the age, at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them into the bundles, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Because here's, here's where it gets real. God is not this, like, jolly old uncle who's just laughing at how cute your sin is. Right? He's not. He, he's an infinite God, and when we sin against an infinitely holy God, it's just to expect an infinitely righteous consequence. This is justice on an eternal level, on an eternal scale, right? Your heart, uh, your heart condition is a problem if it's filled with sin. I wish you to think about that. You, you know how all those evils I mentioned earlier, that we want God to step in and intervene, all those, all those people that were so despicably deplorable. You know how we were praying, God, come in and deal with this. Remove this evil from the face of this earth. Your sin is in that category. My sin is in that category. Our heart condition, which is bent away from submitting to the rule and the reign of King Jesus in every area of our life, that's called sin. And that is on, that is, that is, it is measured on the same scale as, as when Saddam Hussein murdered over two million of his own people. It's measured on the same scale as Hitler wiping out six million Jews or Nero burning Christians just for fun. You and I and Hitler and Nero are all measured on the same scale and none of us measure up. We don't. From heaven's perspective, my sin is just as consequential. Why? Because it was committed against an infinitely holy God. And so for justice to finally and totally prevail on the timeline of humanity, there has to be an infinitely righteous consequence. God is not just overlooking sin because he doesn't see it or because he's dumb or doesn't understand it all. He's got a bigger timeline. And so when we get to this end of this text, in, uh, in, in verse 42, he says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they'll throw them into the fiery furnace. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we get to that and we go, woo, God, chill. Like, doesn't everybody get a free pass? Doesn't everybody get, aren't you a God of love? Won't you just let everybody in eventually? How could you be so 
evil and cruel and, 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 and unjust to, to, man, hell seems a little bit like overkill. And when you understand the severity of everybody's sin, your sin included, and how it measures on an infinite timeline, the question should not actually be, God, how could you be so cruel as to send somebody to hell? The question actually is better asked, God, how could you be good to send anybody to heaven? You don't deserve it. I, I don't, we don't deserve it. No one does. I think when we look at this text, it doesn't actually underscore the grumpiness of God. What it does is highlight the grace of God to continue to extend this offer of grace all the way till March 7th, 2021. And I think on top of that, we can't overlook the additional hurdle, which is enormous to those represented by the weeds in this story. And that is this. In order to be considered righteous, in order to enter the kingdom, they have to submit to the king. They have to receive the forgiveness of Jesus and submit to him as king. And this is, this is something that is a massive hurdle for those who are bent on being their own king or queen. Those who, who refuse to admit that they need grace. In, the, in his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis uh, admitted that if he had his way, hell would be a doctrine he would willingly remove from Christianity. But he said, it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our, our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom. And it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. A few paragraphs later, C.S. Lewis asks us to picture a man who had gained tons of wealth and power. Imagine somebody who has succeeded from this world's perspective. He made it. Tons of wealth and power. But he got to that point because of how evil and how abusive he was to other people. Right? It's a cruel man who did not care about how he treated other people. And you're like, this is evil, right? You imagine people like this, like Hitler. Tons of wealth and power. In fact, tons of fame. He's still talked about today. Super evil, though. And C.S. Lewis says, imagine someone like that. The demand that God should forgive such a man while he remains what he is, is based on the confusion between condoning and forgiving. To condone an evil is simply to ignore it, to treat it as if it were good. In other words, everybody gets a free pass. Everyone gets to go to heaven. But forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered if it is to be complete. A man who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. And this is a massive problem for the weeds in this story. To truly receive grace, they have to first acknowledge their eternal need for it. As one who is hell-bent on being their own king and judge, you, you don't want to do that. Right? You want your own way and your own will to prevail. This is why C.S. Lewis makes the statement, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God will say in the end, thy will be done. In other words, we 
either choose God's way, which leads to eternal glory, or we choose our own way, which ultimately leads to sorrow and disintegration away from the presence of God. And it's only the grace of God which delays the pronouncement that your way will be eternally granted to you away from the king you rejected. That's God's grace. He's extending his, his undeserved favor in saying, I will deal with it, but not yet. Because it gives people time to turn. And here's where I love how it gets good, because he wraps up the text, uh, wraps up the parable by saying, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, we don't just come to the kingdom. We don't just approach the king because we're scared of eternal judgment. Like salvation is not just a get out of hell free card. We, we don't come to the king um, just to get rid of the punishment that we deserve. In fact, in fact, this is an eternally bright glory that we're brought into when we receive the salvation that was made possible by the blood of Jesus, which is now freely offered to us. And in fact, it, it, Jesus clarifies it's only the righteous who will receive the eternally abundant glory. It's only those who have a completely right record with God, who have, who have been made right with God by the blood of Jesus, who will be shining into eternity. And what does Jesus say is necessary to be right with God? He says uh, that this kind of righteousness is only available to those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, in a couple chapters earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, um, there will be many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. In other words, name the name of Jesus. Would say, I'm a Christian. There will be many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, uh, did we not, uh, did we not, prophesy in your name. Let's find the text again here. There we go. Uh, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? I get that. I mean, this, that sounds like a super Christian, by the way. Somebody who looks like they got it all together on the outside. Lord, didn't we do all these things? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. In other words, it's not your spiritual schedule or your religious resume that will give you entrance into the glory of God, but only a personal relationship with Jesus. That is the only way by which you will be considered righteous, right with God. And to enter a personal relationship with Jesus, the Bible makes it abundantly simple and clear. In fact, it's simple as ABC, right? A, admit you're a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My sin separates me from God. It, it drives this wedge between me and, and a relationship with God. And I have to admit that I'm a sinner. I have to admit my need for grace before I can ever receive it. Admit that I'm a sinner. B, believe in Jesus. I believe that he died in my place, took my punishment on him. It bore the full weight of the eternal wrath of God against my sin. So my, my sin, everything that I committed has been forgiven. And then he died... And then he rose again, defeating death, to give me a new life. So believe in Jesus that he, he died in my place to forgive me of my sin and give me a new life. And then C, confess him as Lord. Guys, if you just do A and B, that doesn't make you a Christian. Satan does those things. In fact, by that standard, Satan might even be a better Christian than you. He believes way more about the, the power of Jesus than you do. No, 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 but this is something Satan will never do. Submit to Jesus as Lord. 
A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe in Jesus. C, confess him as Lord. And the Bible says when you do this, you'll be made right with God and immediately enter into a personal relationship with Jesus. You will be considered righteous. You'll be made right with God and you'll be shining like the sun for eternity. So before I go on, I I guess I want to ask, are you right with God? Are you doing more than just believing the right things? But are you also submitting to him and entering into a personal relationship with Jesus where he is the one who dictates what you do? He is the one who rules your life? Or are you just hoping that the good things that you try to do are going to impress him someday? Because Jesus says it's only those who have a personal relationship with him who are made right with God. And when you're made right with God, Jesus is saying, you're going to shine like the sun for eternity in the kingdom of their father. There's going to be a glorified glow coming from my presence when I'm made right with God, shining like the sun for, in the presence of my Father, right? Because I've been in God's presence, my presence is now going to be altered. My presence is now going to be influential. Uh, there's going to be a visible and felt effect that you have on every situation that you find yourself in. And it's not going to be common or found in those who are unbelievers, right? This, this righteousness actually starts now and lasts forever, it's not someday. Let's talk about the, the kingdom of God, the, the hey basileia ton uranon. This is the, the lived, current, present reality of those who have submitted to the king of Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus, I'm sorry. Those who are in God's kingdom are shining like the sun. Why? You're no longer condemned. You're freed. You're no longer hostile to God. In fact, you can please God now. God's spirit lives in you. You've been chosen for adoption as God's child. You're an heir of God set to inherit all the same glories as Jesus. Your suffering and your pain is given eternal meaning and sense. You now have an eternal hope worth waiting for. God's spirit helps you in your weakness and he prays for you. God works all things together for your good. God is for you. If God didn't spare his son to make you his child, can't you imagine how many other things he's going to give you? Freely with him, God justifies you. He's canceled out the validity of any accusation brought against you. Jesus himself bore your condemnation, and he intercedes for you. So there's, there's no one in heaven or on earth who can condemn you. You can't be separated from the love of God. Even to the point of life-threatening trials and hardships, you're going to conquer. You win. You are victorious, even in the worst situations, because of Jesus. And God's love for you is in Jesus. And I cannot um, overstate this, that nothing... Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. This is why the righteous shine. This is why the righteous shine like the sun, because they've been given life by the sun. If you didn't notice that, that was just a small selection of true statements about believers, about those in the kingdom that we find in Romans chapter 8. But here's the point that Jesus is making. That the kingdom, the kingdom grows when we're planting seeds and not pulling weeds. I don't know if you noticed the confusion maybe in chapter 13. Jesus tells two parables in chapter 13 of Matthew that both deal with planting seeds and both deal with soil. And you're like, man, I thought I read this parable before. Yeah, Pastor Jeff preached on it a couple weeks ago, um, the previous one. And in that parable, Jesus describes how we are the ones sowing the seed. And the seed is the word of God. And it's God who makes the seeds grow, not us. And then, later, in this text that we're reading this morning, Jesus says, no, 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 now, 
In this parable, you are the seeds, and the world is the field, and God's the one sowing them, and the angels are going to be the one harvesting them and dealing with the weeds, not you. And then in between these two parables are two more parables, one about a mustard seed and one about yeast, basically to describe the reality that even in God's kingdom, things that seem so small and insignificant and efforts that we place forward and the faith that we have, even though it seems so small, God uses it to grow amazing things. And, and so, so here's the point that Jesus is making in, in chapter 13. As we read this, Matthew is highlighting a very powerful truth that Jesus says is that the kingdom grows when we're planting seeds and not when we're pulling weeds. So let me end with this. This is where it gets personal. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, you need to allow this story to give you a new understanding of God's kingdom and how you are to operate within it. So I believe Jesus is wanting to speak loud and clear to two very different groups of people this morning. The weeds and the wheat. Maybe currently you'd be represented by the weeds in this story. You're not part of God's kingdom because you've never received the salvation of Jesus. You've never submitted to him as king. And the grace of God is extended to you today. You can be made right with God. You, you can have an eternal glory as your destiny. You can enter into God's kingdom. You can be brought from death to life. Just admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, and confess him as Lord. That begins your relationship with Jesus. And the offer is extended to you today. I don't know when... That offer will end, right? At the end of your life or when Jesus returns. And I think this last year has taught us that life is very fragile. The offer is extended to you. The second group of people I want to, I believe Jesus is speaking to is you have received his salvation. You are part of the good fruit in this story. But please don't rest in your destiny. Please don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Please join the king, not in pulling up weeds, but in planting seeds. Show this world who Jesus is for. Let's be a church who is known for what God is for. And that starts with me. That starts with you. Am I known for what I'm for or just what I'm against? Because I think the bad news is the word on the street is we are definitely known for what we're against. Not just this particular body. I think we, there's amazing things happening here. I really believe that. Very proud to be part of this body of believers. But globally as a church, this is what I hear. This is what I read. This is what I see. There's a list, a long list of things that people know we're for. What do people know we're, or sorry, there's a long list of people, what people know we're against. But what do people know that we're for? What do people know that you're for? I could point to a lot of you this morning and go, I know exactly what you're for. Right? And it's Jesus. I can see Jesus' fruit in your life because you're busy, not just pulling weeds, you're busy planting seeds. You're busy bringing the grace of God. Let's be a body of believers who's known for that. Let's join the king because the kingdom grows when we're planting seeds 
not pulling weeds. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would um, plant your seeds of your word deep in our heart. Give us the grace to, to follow you and submit to you and to let your life define us. God, I pray that we would not be the people who are just known for the weeds that we pull. God, I pray that we would be the people who are busy with you planting the seeds of your kingdom in this world. I pray that um, much fruit would grow as we join you in planting in your field until you come again, Lord. We want to be the righteous ones who are shining like the sun. Amen.